When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1316 BCE, give or take, the king of Egypt, Horemheb, led a campaign to the north. The pharaoh's troops went to the city of Byblos, a longtime partner, ally, and subject. They used Byblos as a staging ground, from which they launched a military endeavor. Heading north and east, the Egyptian army went to the land of Karkemish. Karkemish, in modern Syria, was enemy territory. Its ruler, or vile prince, was the vassal of Hatti, the great Hittite kingdom in the north. I recounted the story of Hormheb's campaign in episode 173. Around that time, I was listening to a lot of Janis Joplin, and I wondered, how might a country singer, working in Joplin's style, describe this campaign? Well, Musician Todd Wright stepped up to the microphone and gave me a wonderful rendition, based on a song of Joplin's. Please enjoy Northern Conquest by Todd Wright. I'd like to do a song of religious and political import. It goes like this. Oh Lord, won't you give me a great victory? My troops all bring weapons, they sail on the sea. We came forth from Byblos to Valkarkemish. With Mace and with Kopesh, their heads will go squish. Oh Lord, won't you give me a northern conquest? Slaying for Amun, for Ra and for Seth. Riding our chariots each day without rest. Oh Lord, won't you give us a northern conquest? That's it. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 174, Horus in Rest. Today, King Horemheb's reign enters its final phase. The pharaoh of Egypt has accomplished much in his years of rule, but his time is now running out. But how long does Horemheb have before he makes that journey to the west? The answer is controversial, and there are many intriguing questions to unpack. Today, we explore these final years of the king. This episode comes to you as an offering from the wonderful folks at Patreon. My subscribers on Patreon have been so patient with my recent hiatus, so I dedicate this episode to them. Patrons, you are too generous. Thank you kindly for your support. Now then, on with the show. 
the last years of Djosa Keperu Ra, Horemheb, the king of Egypt. Last time, we described events in year 16 of Horemheb's rule, around 1316 BCE. The next phase of his reign is rather enigmatic, and there is one question that lingers over all. How long exactly did Horemheb rule, and how old was he when he died? That question may sound unbelievably minute, but it actually goes to the heart of how we write ancient history, and how significant even tiny pieces of evidence can be. As we enter this final phase, let's address the nagging question. How long did Horemheb reign? By regnal year 16, Horemheb might have been in his early 50s, approximately. We're not sure exactly how old he was, but Horemheb had been a major figure in Egypt's political hierarchy for nearly 30 years. Since the days of Tutankhamun, Horemheb, as a politician, had been incredibly powerful. Assuming he gained prominence sometime in his late 20s, the king was probably 55 years old, give or take, by this point in his reign. Assuming he was in good health, with a reasonable diet and exercise, he might expect to live another 10 years or more. But was Horemheb healthy? Would he rule for much longer? That, surprisingly, is unknown. The reign of Horemheb is controversial among academics. There is a major debate about the length of this reign. And historians argue, sometimes quite passionately, for different lengths of time. The discussion, in short, goes like this. We have three major records that relate to King Horemheb, specifically to the length of his reign. Three dates from different sources give wildly different measurements for Horemheb's time on the throne. The shortest date is 16 years, the second is 27 years, and the third date is a whopping 59 years or more. Now, this may sound academic, and it is, but these dates are so variable that whichever one you choose, it has massive implications for how you imagine the history of Egypt. I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but it's an important point. The shortest possible length for Horemheb's reign is 16 years. That is the year of his campaign of victory to the north. A campaign that, until recently, was quite controversial in the scholarship. Today, the situation may be changing, and I discussed that last episode, but if we take year 16 as legitimate, that is the shortest possible length that Horemheb ruled Egypt. The second length is 27 years. This one comes from Horemheb's memorial temple, which I'll discuss later. Here, a broken piece of a statue bears a text. It says, quote, Year 27, the first month of Shembu, or harvest season, Day 9, the day on which Hor Emheb, life, prosperity, health, the beloved of Amun, entered. The rest of that text is broken, so we don't know where exactly Horemheb was entering. But in the context, a statue discovered in the memorial temple, historians can guess at the answer. 
This text may refer to the day when Hormheb's body came to his temple for embalming. There are other interpretations. Maybe the king himself, very much alive, visited the temple on that day. Or maybe this is the day when builders brought the statue representing the king to the temple. All of those arguments are valid. There is no definitive answer. But it's a noteworthy source. A text that does not mention any other reign or ruler gives 27 years for Hormeb. Again, there is debate. But 27 years is plausible. If Hormheb came to the throne sometime in his 30s or early 40s, he could very well have lived into his late 50s or 60s. Again, we have no direct proof of that, but it's totally feasible. Finally, the third length is 59 years. This one comes from a few decades after Hormheb died. In the days of Ramesses II, a scribe was making a record of recent events. The scribe's name was Mose, and he was concerned with a legal dispute that was afflicting his family. I'll tell the full story of that at the appropriate time. But when Mose was writing down this record, he mentioned a date, year 59 of Horemheb. In other words, a scribe suggested that Horemheb's reign was nearly six decades long. Broadly speaking, scholars consider this one extremely unlikely. The math just doesn't check out. Horemheb was active in Egypt's government for a good 10 to 15 years before he gained the throne. Even if he came to prominence in his early 20s, he would have been at least 35 when he took power. For him to reign 59 years, he would have died in his mid-90s. That is possible, but it's the most unlikely answer. And it's such a massive gap between year 59 and the year 27 record that we really have to doubt this record. So 59 years for Horemheb is the least likely of the options. But that begs the question, why did a random scribe in the reign of Ramesses give Horemheb 59 years? As I said, that scribe, Moser, lived just a few decades after Horemheb died. There's no reason to think that Horemheb's reign was already a point of contention, that somehow people forgot how long he ruled that quickly. So why did Mose write 59 years? Well, the year 59 date may be an illusion. It's possible that the scribe was combining Horemheb's reign with those of his recent predecessors. By the time that Mose wrote his record in the reign of Ramesses II, Egypt's government had well and truly turned their backs on the Amarna period. The reigns of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, Tutankhamun, and Ai were basically removed from the official record. But deleting their reigns would have been complicated. If nothing else, the calendar and the festival records needed to be kept in line. So it's possible that in the days of Ramesses II, royal policy started to officially date Horemheb's reign as the entire Amarna period. In this scenario, the Egyptian government may have taken Horemheb's regnal years and simply added those of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, Tutankhamun, and Ai. Doing that, they could keep the calendar in sync while ignoring those unsavory rulers. This argument may seem far-fetched, but it's actually kind of feasible. 
Based on the current historical records, the reign of Akhenaten seems to be about 17 years long. The reign of Nefertiti, as Nefer Neferu Aten, seems to be about 3 years. The reign of Tutankhamun was approximately 10 years, and the reign of Ai was 4 years or slightly longer. Put these together, and you get approximately 34 years. And allowing for some overlap between those years, when one king died and another took over, the dates seem to line up. If you take the 59 years that Mose gave Horemheb, and subtract 34 or so, that leaves you with approximately 25. That is remarkably close to the year 27 we get from Horemheb's statue. Assuming that the scribe in the days of Ramesses was not marking year 59 as the date of Horemheb's death, this math may roughly check out. So we have two records that might harmonize. The year 59 is probably a later invention, or at least a reworking of the calendar. The year 27, which does come from Horemheb's temple, might line up with that unusual later number. The problem here is that none of these records explicitly mark the date of Horemheb's death. The date of year 16 records a campaign, nothing more. The year 27 might relate to Horemheb's passing and his preparation for burial, but it could also relate to a statue or simply a royal visit. Finally, the year 59 is probably an aberration from a later period. In the context, these records are really hard to rely upon. The point here is that ancient history can be incredibly messy. When it comes to dates, scholars are often working on fragments of evidence, and what evidence they do have might offer radically different interpretations. For academics, the debate might be a worthwhile exercise in detective work, and it might even be fun, but it does pose a problem. For a podcast trying to give some semblance of chronology, it's kind of a lose-lose situation. If I give Horemheb a long reign, I might deviate massively from other records down the line. But if I give Horemheb a short reign, I run the risk that future archaeology and scholarship might add more years to his rule. In the end, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. In the circumstances, I have decided to give Horemheb 27 years of rule. I have two reasons for this. Firstly, the statue piece that says year 27 is reasonably compelling. At the very least, it comes from Horemheb's temple, it refers to this king directly, and you can make a strong argument that it might associate with his death. What's more, the year 27 roughly corresponds with those later attempts to modify Horemheb's rule. So those are my two historical reasons for following that date. More practically, by giving him 27 years, I am allowing some flexibility in the historical record. The reign of Horemheb is unsettled among academics. At the moment, the year 16 campaign is our best evidence of his deeds, but more evidence may come forward to build out the picture. By choosing 27 years, I give myself some wiggle room. So, the History of Egypt podcast gives Horemheb 27 years of rule. Some scholars would disagree with that, possibly quite strongly, and that is perfectly valid. But on the evidence we have, I am leaning towards this date. As far as I can tell, Horemheb died in the 27th year of his reign, 
You might say that he, like Janis Joplin, was part of the 27 Club. Whether he reigned 27 years or 200, Horemheb would inevitably need to face the realities of death. And he would need to prepare for his passing. The king still had to finish his royal tomb in the Valley of the Kings. And he was going to need a temple, a memorial cult that could worship and sustain him in the afterlife. After the break, we will explore the last great monuments of Horemheb's rule. We will visit his memorial temple on the west bank of the Nile, and then we will see the king's funeral and burial in his hidden tomb. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As his reign entered its final phase, Horemheb would need to look ahead and face his eventual death. And to prepare for that, he was going to require a memorial temple. The memorial, or mortuary temple, was a most important structure. Every king worth their salt built one of these. In these temples, dedicated to the king himself, priests would give offerings and prayers to the immortal soul and vitality of a ruler, the Ba and Ka spirits. Like most of his predecessors, Horemheb built a memorial temple. Well, sort of. Unlike most of his predecessors, Horemheb did not really build a memorial temple. He stole one. Horemheb's memorial temple is interesting because it's not really his monument. Once again, the pharaoh usurped a structure of an earlier ruler to establish his cult. Can you guess whose temple he stole? Let's put it to a vote. All those who say I, say I. I. In the four or five years of his reign, King Ai had funded a temple at Waset, modern Luxor. It was located on the west bank, halfway between the memorial temple of Amunhotep III and the old palace at Malkata. It was also close to the memorial temple of Tutankhamun, and the enormous Aten town, the village of artisans and builders near Malkata Palace. Aten town is currently under excavation, but in this general area, between Malkata in the south and the temple of Amunhotep III in the north, this zone was extremely busy during the late 18th dynasty. King Ai established his memorial temple in that bustling area. Now, King Horemheb did the same. Sort of. Rather than build a new monument, Horemheb took Ai's temple for his own. He erased the names of his predecessor and replaced them with his. He expanded the temple, adding new structures and features. And over the years, he gradually removed all visible traces of Ai. He didn't remove everything. 
back when I established the monument, his builders buried foundation deposits. These are small collections of items that go beneath the foundations of a monument. Those often included little plaques or tiles with the name of the person who established it. Archaeologists discovered the foundation deposits belonging to King Ai, so they know this was originally his temple. Excavations at the monument have uncovered the various phases of construction and decoration. Apparently, following Ai's death, Horemheb reworked the entire structure. First, he erased Ai's names wherever they appeared. This included a pair of colossal statues, one of which now decorates the University of Chicago Museum. The colossal statue is often attributed to King Tutankhamun, who may have started the project, but the names on the belt originally said I. Now they say Horemheb. If you're a local in the area, you've probably encountered the fruits of Horemheb's usurpation. The other of these statues is in Cairo, in an out-of-the-way corner of the old museum. If you're wandering through, near the Amana room, you might pass the Colossus of Tutankhamun or Ai or Horemheb on your way to the Great Hall or other areas, but it's still there, watching over the visitors. Beyond erasing and replacing, Horemheb also expanded this temple. He commissioned an enormous portico, an open-air courtyard lined with columns. He built a new entrance, a massive pylon gateway. And he added support facilities, large storerooms and granaries that the priests could use in worship. In short, Horemheb built the structure outward from what I had started. And Horemheb finished this Temple 2.0 with all the supplies it could need. Hypothetically, this monument should provide sustenance for his soul in eternity. Did it work? Sort of. Horemheb's memorial temple had a staff of priests, caretakers, and workers. And this operation endured after his death and continued to function on his behalf. Horemheb's memorial cult was reasonably long-lived. In fact, we have references to this monument nearly 150 years after his reign. Archaeologists have uncovered traces and documents that mention this temple all the way into Dynasty 20, around 1180 BCE. In that time, a great king named Ramesses III constructed massive building projects in this area. Most notably, Ramesses built his own memorial temple right next to the temple of Horemheb, Slash I. Today, that temple of Ramesses is famous. It is called Medinet Habu, and it is one of the main destinations for tourists in the area. Medinet Habu of Ramesses III is enormous, and surrounded by a massive mud-brick wall. The building is truly impressive. If you visit it on foot, you get a real sense of the scale and splendor these temples once evoked. Alas, the Medinet Habu temple is also a problem. When Ramesses built this monument, he built it in a small valley or gully, an area that was prone to flooding. Periodically, the storm clouds burst and unleashed torrents of water on Luxor and the West Bank. In these storms, great floods sweep down from the cliffs. The temple of Ramesses III was safe behind its high walls. But that wall caused the floodwaters to detour, right into the temple of Horemheb and Ai. 
Over the centuries, countless floods battered the walls and sanctuaries of this temple. The foundations eroded, the masonry collapsed, and by the 1930s, this temple was practically invisible, buried beneath mud and sand. The excavator, Uvo Hulscher, described it quite evocatively. Quote, How terrific the force of water must have been. This can be judged by the fact that not a trace of any ancient construction remains in its bed. Even the bedrock has been polished smooth by the rolling stones and gravel which the torrents brought with it. End quote. So Horemheb's temple and eyes endured for 150 years, give or take. But when a later pharaoh built a new monument just next door, the temple's days came to their end. From that moment, the local geography and climate conspired to slowly batter Horemheb's temple down. Today, the site is almost forgotten. I had the opportunity to visit it in 2019. The area is sandy, just a few parts remain visible. Some column bases, the foundations of walls. Across the street, modern houses look over the site. Villagers drive past or bicycle, some children wave hello. But tourists go past, maybe glancing briefly, on their way to Medinat Habu. It is a surprisingly lonely spot. The halls of Ai and Horemheb are quiet and forgotten. My description of this temple comes primarily from the excavation report, which was published by the University of Chicago. You can read this report for free. The University of Chicago has made many of their archaeological publications available online to the general public. If you would like to read this book, and many more about archaeology in Egypt or the Near East, simply follow the link in the episode description. I highly recommend it. Horemheb built his temple, or stole it from King Ai. He prepared a memorial cult that would supply him with goods and worship long after his death. So the king did prepare, and when the fateful moment finally arrived, perhaps Horemheb was ready. No matter how long he ruled, Horemheb inevitably came to the end of his life. By my reckoning, this probably happened in 1305 BCE. It was the first month of Shemu, approximately April in the modern Western calendar. The heat was growing, the land was sweltering, and one day, the king of Egypt breathed his last. Pharaoh's life gave out, his ba left his body, and Horemheb, Horus in festival was gone. Upon his death, the king's attendants prepared the corpse. Priests washed his limbs and ritually shaved his face and neck. They placed him on a carrying bed, and they took his body to the memorial temple. There, the priests anointed him, said their prayers, and made offerings to the gods. Then, they began the all-important work of mummification. Horemheb's mummy does not survive in the modern day. At present, there is no body that can be satisfactorily identified as the king. 
that is a shame. It would be nice to know more about him as a person, rather than a symbol. But that is the way it goes. Just like his memorial temple, Horemheb's body is a victim of time and history. Thank heavens for his tomb. Horemheb's tomb in the Valley of the Kings is beautiful. Depending on your criteria, it is easily in the top three monuments from the entire valley. Other tombs might be larger or have richer colours, but Horemheb's tomb preserves a unique vision. A vision of exquisite, high-quality art and fascinating history. I described the tomb of Horemheb in detail in episode 169. As a brief recap, the tomb is remarkable for the quality of its art. Horemheb's artists did something different from any tomb before. Instead of painting the art directly on the walls, they added another step to the process. Before they painted, the artists carved the images, chiseling them out of the stone. Doing this gave the art greater definition and precision, and allowed the figures to really pop in the final product. The builders also made changes to the architecture, check out episode 169 for more details. But long story short, Horemheb's artisans did an amazing job on this tomb. Mostly. The decoration of Horemheb's burial halls is unfinished. The artists managed to draw the scenes on every important wall, and in half of the chambers they were able to carve the stone, plaster the walls, and then paint the beautiful details. But the other half are rough. Literally. For much of Horemheb's tomb, the decoration is left as an outline. Mere sketches of an incomplete project. Why? Horemheb may have ruled 27 years, and yet his tomb is unfinished. By comparison, some of the kings who followed Horemheb would complete equally beautiful and grand monuments in far less time. This begs the question, why couldn't Horemheb's builders do the job properly? This question does not yet have an answer. There are a few possibilities. The first one is logistics. Horemheb's tomb has a new style of decoration, one that required a whole extra layer of work and precision when carving. That may have slowed the process quite significantly, or at the very least, it may have required a great deal more preparation than usual. That might give one answer. Perhaps there were simple delays due to the new style. Another explanation is that perhaps Horemheb's builders did not work on this tomb for the full 27 years of his rule. We often imagine, or assume, that a king would begin working on their tomb as soon as they came to the throne. But it's actually quite rare to have proper evidence on when these projects started. Tombs usually do not have dates. We can make educated guesswork based on other information, but we don't actually know when the kings started these projects. In some situations, they might begin them right away. But in others, there might be reasons for thinking they started quite late. In Horemheb's case, there is good reason for thinking that the tomb in the Valley of the Kings did not start work until nearly 10 years into his rule. In episodes 167 and 168, I described two important projects that happened in Horemheb's reign. In the first, Horemheb's officials seem to have reorganised the village of the tomb builders, 
the village we call Deir el Medina. That happened in year 7, and we have dated documents that reference it. In another episode, one of Horemheb's servants, a man named Maya, led an inspection of the Valley of the Kings. Maya and his assistant went to the tomb of King Tutmose IV, and they checked that monument for any robberies or intrusion. That inspection happened in year 8, and we have a dated record to confirm that. Again, I've told those stories previously, but they are relevant here for a simple reason. Horemheb's agents were active in the Valley of the Kings and the nearby Deir el-Medina around years 7 and 8. That is quite a specific time frame, and you have to wonder, did Horemheb initiate these projects because he was preparing to build his tomb? Did royal officials come to Deir el-Medina and the Valley of the Kings as part of the preliminary work on this monument? Did the king ask his officials to organise the workforce at Deir el-Medina, and did Maya go to the tomb of Tutmose IV in order to check on the valley overall, and maybe get some inspiration for the upcoming work? I'm wildly speculating here, but we do have two specific references to work in years 7 and 8, and this work is associated with the Valley of the Kings. So, I wonder, did Horemheb start his tomb quite late? Did his agents only come to the Valley of the Kings to begin building this monument around year 7, year 8, or even later? Again, pure speculation. But if you asked me to bet on the date of Horemheb's tomb project, I might put a couple of dollars on year 7 or 8 as a starting point. Nothing I couldn't afford to lose, but in the circumstances, I do wonder if Horemheb started his royal tomb much later than we would expect. So, for some reason, the decoration of Horemheb's tomb was unfinished when he died. Perhaps while the king's body was undergoing mummification, the royal artists pulled extra shifts. Maybe they crunched and crunched trying to get it done. But in the end, Horemheb's tomb had a lot of cut content. Incomplete decoration, and sections barely sketched out. Nonetheless, the funeral would go ahead. And one day, in 1305 BCE, Horemheb's mummy travelled to his tomb. When archaeologists first opened Horemheb's tomb in the early 1900s, the monument was full of rubble. Torrential flooding over the centuries had washed debris into the halls. Sections of the ceiling had collapsed, and the tomb overall was in very poor condition. The art was still beautiful, but when it came to the contents, the funerary items, Horemheb's burial did not offer much. Over the years, different archaeological projects have systematically cleared, cleaned, and examined this tomb. Archaeologists have slowly removed the debris, one basket at a time, and sifting through the remains, they have found pieces of Horemheb's funeral. Amid the wreckage, Horemheb's tomb offers a variety of items. The king's canopic jars have survived partially. They were made of stone, with heads shaped like the king's. So Horemheb's viscera were contained within stone vessels, as was tradition. There were also small statues in the shape of animals. One of them shows a panther or a lion, and another shows a canine, Anubis, reclining at ease. 
These statues are very similar to ones found in the tomb of Tutankhamun, and realistically, they probably came from the same royal workshops. There was also a small bed, a model in the shape of Osiris. This Osiris bed is quite specific. It is designed to hold soil and seeds. Osiris, the king of the dead, was also a lord of fertility and growing. To honour him and bring his power into the tomb, the ancients would place small wooden beds in the shape of Osiris in the grave. These are small, but the idea was to fill them with earth and plant seeds. Ideally, the seeds would germinate and bring forth their shoots. In the darkness of a tomb, new life would take root. Along with the Osiris bed, Horemheb also took one of Osiris' products. The royal tomb contained dozens of jars filled with wine. These wine jars were broken by the time archaeologists found them, but the labels remained, written on the pottery. Translating those labels, we know that Horemheb took wine of good quality, Ireb Nefer, into his tomb. He also took wine of very good quality, Ireb Nefer Nefer. The alcohol came from royal estates along the Western River, that is part of the Delta, the enormous fertile area in the north. For centuries, Egyptian monarchs owned vast wineries in that region. Horemheb's estates were part of a long tradition. Incidentally, those wine jars contribute to the chronology debate that I referenced earlier. Many of these jars have dates, including the year of their harvest. Most of these dates are fragmented, and could go as high as year 23 or 33, but the highest surviving dates are years 13 and 14. On that basis, scholars Geoffrey Martin and Jacobus van Dyck have argued for a shorter reign. I don't follow that argument personally, because these wine jars only tell us about the harvest and production. Since the wine was excellent quality, it is entirely possible that Horemheb just put aside some jars for his tomb. That way, he could enjoy an excellent vintage in eternity. I've summarised that debate really briefly, but it's worth noting. Wine jars in the royal tomb might affect how you date Horemheb's reign. Anyway, back to the funerary goods. Besides the Osiris bed, the wine, the canopic jars, and the animal statues, Horemheb also took a pair of guardians. Wooden statues, life-sized, depicted the king as a standing guard. Again, these guardian statues are very similar to ones found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. That king's statues are beautiful, dark wood covered in gold. Horemheb's are, well, they're not nearly as nice. They probably looked similar once upon a time, but over the centuries, robbers stripped away the gold and a big chunk of the wood. Today, what remains are just a few pieces. Enough to get the picture, but far less beautiful. Of course, Horemheb also had a sarcophagus. This does survive. In the burial chamber, at the centre of the room, a large stone casket acted as Horemheb's resting place. The sarcophagus is decorated. At each corner, a goddess stands guard, and they stretch out their wings over the faces of the box. Behind those wings, 
other gods march along the surface. They are the sons of Horus, a jackal, a falcon, a baboon, and a human male. These beings stand guard for the king and help guide him to the underworld. The casket is beautiful, and it remains in Horemheb's tomb today. Archaeologists have found the traces of Horemheb's burial, enough to say confidently that the king had everything you would expect from a royal interment. Was the tomb as lavish as that of Tutankhamun? Hard to say. Tutankhamun had so many heirlooms and random pieces that his burial may be unusually rich for the time. But Horemheb was a pharaoh of Egypt, the centre of a palatial economy producing unimaginable wealth. Chances are he went to his grave in style. So traces of the burial survive, but one notable item is missing. Horemheb's coffin has eluded archaeologists to this day. That is unusual. Even if the mummy were destroyed by looters, we might expect to find pieces of the coffin within the tomb, fragments here and there in the rubble. But to date, there is nothing. Which begs the question, did somebody remove Horemheb's coffin? There is a chance that Horemheb's casket does survive. A wooden box found in a different tomb might be the coffin of this king. That coffin comes from a cache, one of those deposits of royal mummies made in later centuries. Discovered in 1881, this coffin is striking. It is plain wood, no gold. Shaped like a mummy, the figure carries the royal scepters, the crook and the flail. It wears a long headdress over the shoulders, and a cobra uraeus rears up on the forehead. The face is bold, delicately painted with distinctive eyes and full lips. Down the jawline, a thin black line leads to the king's beard. The image is serene, calm, and ready for eternity. Officially, this coffin belongs to Ramesses II, the most famous of pharaohs, who ruled some 15 years after Horemheb. When discovered in the royal cache, the coffin held the mummy that we believe to be Ramesses. On the body of this coffin, a priest had written a text identifying the body as that king. So we know that Ramesses II wound up in this coffin eventually, but was the casket always his? Scholars examining this piece have noticed one thing in particular. The coffin's face does not match the statues and images of Ramesses. In fact, several examiners have concluded this coffin is probably borrowed from somebody else. The idea goes that when the priests were reburying the royal mummies, placing them in those caches, they used whatever coffins were available. If one king lacked a coffin, and one coffin lacked a body, they would put them together, add a label to mark the new owner, and leave it at that. As a result, mummies like Ramesses II might easily wind up in a coffin made for someone else. But based on the design of this casket, especially its face, scholars have suggested that the item originally belonged to a ruler of Dynasty 18. There are several possibilities, Horemheb, I, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, Akhenaten, but out of these, the statues of Horemheb seem to be the closest match with the coffin's face. 
In other words, the casket of Ramesses II, in which his mummy was discovered, may originally be the coffin of Horemheb. At the moment, that is informed speculation. We can't prove it. By the time priests reused this coffin, it had lost all of its original decoration. The gold was stripped away, the carvings were gone, and any trace of the original hieroglyphs was lost. So we can't prove that this was Horemheb's casket. But based on the design, the possibility is strong. When we gaze at the coffin of Ramesses, we may also be gazing at Horemheb. Horemheb's mummy is gone. His coffin might survive. The sarcophagus remains in his tomb. And that tomb, although unfinished, is one of the more beautiful monuments in the Valley of the Kings. Overall, the legacy of Horemheb's burial is mixed. A beautiful grave, but no body. A possible coffin, but no certainty. Traces of the funeral and goods, but nothing substantial. A paltry legacy for a once accomplished ruler. There is one last feature of this tomb that I haven't discussed. Amidst the decoration, Horemheb's tomb introduces something new. The hieroglyphs and images adorning these chambers present a new book of royal funerary literature. This book, like the more famous Book of the Dead or the Amduat, describe aspects of the underworld, the land of the dead, the land of night, and it describes those who dwell within. Horemheb's tomb presents a new form of those texts. It is called the Book of Gates. The Book of Gates is a brand new iteration of the underworld. It has similarities with earlier ones, like the Amduat or the Book of the Dead, but it displays new ideas, new imagery, and new information. The Book of Gates is significant, and Horemheb's tomb is the first royal monument to use it. But following this king, more than a dozen rulers would use the Book of the Dead in their burial halls. All the way through the Ramesside period, this would be a central text for royal funerals. With that in mind, I'm not going to discuss the Book of Gates here. It is too big and too important. I'm going to devote the next couple of episodes to that text. After Horemheb's burial, we'll take a few moments to explore the Book of Gates in detail. For now, just know that Horemheb's tomb in the Valley of the Kings does not use the same literature as his predecessors. The king introduced a new text to the funerary library. It is a fascinating book. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The death of Horemheb around 1305 BCE is a significant milestone in Egypt's political history. In the big picture, it marks the definitive end of the 18th dynasty. More on that and its meaning in the next few episodes. At the time, Horemheb's reign was noteworthy for several reasons, and his legacy was remarkably enduring. Horemheb's origins immediately stand out as a point of interest. He is one of those rare pharaohs who rise from the wider society. He was not born to the royal family or born to rule, although he certainly claimed to be. Instead, Horemheb was more like Thutmose I or Amenemhat I, a non-royal figure who gained the throne. These rulers often played a significant role in shaping the political fortunes of the royal household. Amenemhat I had kicked off the 12th dynasty, often marked as the start of Egypt's Middle Kingdom. Likewise, historians call the mid-to-late 18th dynasty the Tutmosid era, on account of its forebear and most famous rulers. Horemheb, arguably, deserves the same treatment. Depending on your chronology, Horemheb was a significant figure in Egypt's political and social culture for nearly 40 years. The four decades after the death of Akhenaten were shaped by three regimes, Tutankhamun, I, and Horemheb. As a royal official, Horemheb held influence and political power throughout this period, and he probably had a strong influence on administrative decisions. Chances are, many of the policies that were enacted by these governments came or were supported by Horemheb and his followers. As king, he is also noteworthy for a focus on governance and reorganisation. In particular, his Great Decree seems to mark a significant break between an older way of doing things and a new, more regulated form of business. The king's monument building, both as a royal official and as a king, are significant, and the work of Horemheb, or at least his servants, is still visible at great temples like Karnak and Luxor. The king is clearly one of the lesser-known figures in the long litany of pharaohs, but he deserves his place and recognition. Those achievements are significant, both then and now. At the time, perhaps Horemheb's most decisive decision was his choice of heir. When the king died, he did not have a son. And at some point prior to his death, Horemheb seems to have made plans for this eventuality. He appointed, or at least acknowledged, a man named Paramesu as his successor. Paramesu would go on to become the king Ramesses I, and this decision to appoint Paramesu as an heir marks the beginning of a new era in Egypt's political history. For those involved in the politics of the royal household, that must have been a significant decision both then and in hindsight. In effect, the ascent of this non-royal man, Horemheb, marked a definite break with the old royal lineage and the start of a new one. That shift was going to have enormous ramifications moving forward. 
So the reign of Horemheb does mark a significant turning point in certain political concerns. What about his actual legacy? Horemheb would be remembered and respected by those who came after. In later generations, various kings would recognise him as one of the great founding rulers, and he would appear in artistic scenes, alongside very famous pharaohs. I'll cover those sort of images and the stories they tell at the appropriate time. But it's worth noting that as the 19th dynasty began, the age of the Ramessides, Horemheb would be recognised as a founder for this lineage, and he would be given great respect and recognition by many generations of rulers. The king's memory also endured in more populous situations. About 300 years after Horemheb's death, a man living in Waset, Thebes, commissioned an elaborate coffin. His name was Konsu Hotep, and he was a priest in local temples. Making his coffin, Konsu Hotep made a curious decision. He added images of Horemheb on the front. The great king appears among various deities like Osiris, and he receives worship and veneration from the coffin's owner. This coffin is now in Leiden in the Netherlands, although I recently got to see it on tour when it visited Seoul in South Korea. That was an unexpected joy to come face to face with Konsu Hotep's coffin and to see Horemheb there on the surface. It's an interesting piece, and it's a mark of the great respect this king enjoyed by many generations after him. So Horemheb had a long legacy. Unlike his recent predecessors, he would enjoy great veneration. Of course, the king himself was responsible for obliterating some of his recent predecessors. And in the modern age, that gives Horemheb a certain notoriety. Depending on your attitude or sympathies towards people like Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and Tutankhamun, Horemheb might appear as a villain, a man who cruelly crushed the Amarna period and stripped back many of its beautiful achievements. Hopefully, this podcast has shown that that is not true, that Horemheb and his reign had a more nuanced approach to that period. In fact, Horemheb continued many of the ideas that Akhenaten had popularised, and some of those ideas would carry on for generations. The king certainly did not throw it all away. It is true that Horemheb seems to have suppressed certain aspects of recent history. His approach or attitude towards the Amarna period is somewhat ambivalent. It's hard to tell whether he personally was vengeful against them, or if he simply had strong political motivations for sweeping all of that under the rug. This is a question that we cannot answer in a single reign. We're going to come back to it repeatedly during the 19th dynasty, as Horemheb's heirs, kings like Seti I and Ramesses II, grapple with the Amarna period in their own ways. So to call Horemheb a villain who destroyed the Amarna legacy is, in my opinion, unfair. There's a lot more nuance and a lot more back and forth happening in the history. At the same time, Horemheb is not necessarily a hero, a traditionalist reformer who re-established the old prerogatives and sanctuaries of the gods. Officially, he certainly presented himself in that light, but in many respects, Horemheb simply carried on what had already been achieved in the governments of Ai and Tutankhamun. That is not to say that Horemheb does not deserve credit, 
After all, he had been a significant politician during those times, and chances are he influenced many of those decisions. The king seems to have achieved much, and he left a strong foundation for future rulers to develop. But was he a political saviour? A restitutor orbis? Or was he more like a skilled captain, somebody who took the helm of a ship during the midst of a storm, and was able to navigate the choppy waters until they approached safe harbours? Again, much of this will come down to your personal perspective, and your view of the late 18th dynasty. To say that things changed irrevocably under Horemheb does not quite reflect the evidence that we have. Instead, this pharaoh appears to be more of a skilled governor, somebody who was able to calm the disputes and bring things closer to a peaceful stability. There would be ongoing changes and shifts in the wider society, but perhaps Horemheb was able to calm things somewhat. If that sounds like a quiet or mundane legacy, it is far more valuable than it first appears. Thanks to the reign of Horemheb, Egypt's government was on a more stable footing than it had been before. Things in the wider world were still difficult, and they would cross those bridges when they came to them. But as the bar of Horemheb flew west and joined Osiris, he left a bright sunrise for his successors. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. As of 2023, the show is hosted by Airwave Media, a podcasting network dedicated to education, science, and outreach. Airwave hosts many shows, including The Ancient World by Scott Chesworth and The History of China by Chris Stewart. If you have enjoyed my show, consider checking out these other podcasts. Visit airwavemedia.com to learn more. Next time, we take a moment to dive into Horemheb's funerary text. The Book of Gates presents a new vision of the underworld and the mysteries of its depths. Over two episodes, I will dive deep into the Book of Gates, following Ra and Osiris in their nightly adventures. That is episode 175 and 176, releasing soon. Before I go, I'd like to thank my supporters on Patreon, specifically the priests. Folks like Ashley, Martha, Stuart, Nidin, John, Kyla, Evan, Andy and Chelsea, Kevin, Andrea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry, Ellen, and Linda. You are all too generous. With your kindness, we can expand the memorial temple, fill the storehouses with supplies, and prepare for an eternity of worship. Thank you all so much. Finally, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the History of Egypt podcast, you can find additional material on my website, and you can support what I do by making a donation through PayPal or joining the Patreon. Follow the links in the episode description to learn more. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.